baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. They say that here in the U.S., states are the laboratories of democracy. And it's true, each and every day we're running a state-sized experiment on ourselves, whether we're testing out new tax policies, new reforms to education, new environmental controls. Well, at the beginning of this year, California launched one of those experiments on a grand scale when it legalized the recreational use of marijuana. I'm Keith Manconi, and today on In-Depth, we're going to finish out our two-part series examining marijuana's impact in California as we near the end of our first year of legal recreational sales. Last week, we discussed how the brand new marijuana industry is faring as businesses scramble to adapt to a range of new regulations and taxes. This week, though, we're going to look at some of the social consequences of legalization. First, we'll be looking at what legalization has meant for the criminal justice system, and then we'll examine what impact it's had on our kids. So to help us out with the criminal justice end of things, we're going to speak first to Josh Mizell. He is a professor of sociology and a co-director of the Humboldt Institute for Interdisciplinary Marijuana Research. To start out our conversation, I asked him the question, have we seen a reduction of marijuana arrests now that so many activities are no longer criminal? We are absolutely in California. The number of uh, people arrested for felony marijuana arrests in California is way down in uh, um, compared to what it was prior to legalization. Uh, data from uh, the state of California shows a 70, about a 75% drop in 2017 compared to 2016 for all felony marijuana arrests. And what's interesting about that is that you would expect that maybe there would be um, an increase in other types of drug arrests, but we're actually seeing a, a significant drop in arrests for narcotics and other dangerous drugs. And so what it may be suggesting is that the regulated cannabis market is actually helping to shrink the size of the illicit drug market. I mean, that's just speculation on my part, but seeing um, such drops in, you know, such big drops in numbers is, is, uh, is, is pretty telling. So I guess kind of the theory that you're hinting at there is that if fewer people are engaging in that black market for marijuana, uh, then they would also be engaging less in black markets for other illicit drugs. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, acquiring cannabis from an illicit market opens, one's, uh, opens one up to other drug uh, options. And if one is now, you know, acquiring cannabis in a legal dispensary, in a legal shop, then you know that they're they're no longer accessing that illicit market. Um, they're no longer, and it's not even just whether they're going to be acquiring another substance. 
you know, there's there's the risk of, of um, you know, uh, a robbery. There's the risk of somebody being um, assaulted in an illicit context. I mean, it opens up a whole can of worms when you when you have um, uh, drug transactions occurring in an illicit context as opposed to illicit. I mean, it's still illicit. It's a it's still a drug transaction, but it's playing out in a regulated context. But because it's regulated, there are now rules, and those rules prevent people from ripping you off. They prevent people from selling you something that is illicit. You know, there are all sorts of controls. So, um, I, I I'm I'm excited to see what plays out in the uh, in the months and years ahead as California and many other states are experimenting with legalization. So from the perspective of folks that want to see legalization go well, I mean, I, I would imagine that those are fairly encouraging numbers. But I want to bring in the voice of uh, Dr. Kevin Sabet, who has a slightly different perspective on this. He is the president of Smart Approaches to Marijuana, which is an advocacy group that opposes marijuana legalization. Uh, And he has told me that he is actually very concerned about the unchecked growth of the marijuana industry because, uh, in his view, you know, it's one thing to see a drop in crimes that are no longer criminal, uh, but he is very concerned about the behavior associated with marijuana use as it becomes used more frequently with legalization. I see the stats on citations at schools. I I see the stats on driving. And I'm extremely worried that we have essentially, maybe unwittingly, allowed for the mass commercialization and promotion of a drug that is so much more harmful today than it ever was before. So essentially what he's arguing is that even though we're eliminating many of the crimes associated with marijuana use, the increased usage of marijuana itself will lead to increases in other forms of criminal behavior. And in in making this point, he uh, did something which I found kind of interesting. He drew an analogy to alcohol, uh, asserting that alcohol is the number one drug associated with arrests in the U.S. Uh, And he points out of alcohol that, of course, it's legal, but it's illegal to drive. It's illegal to use in public and it's illegal to sell to minors or give to minors. And yet more people are arrested for those things than all illegal drugs combined. Because when you normalize something and you drive it through a commercial industry, you have more problems. And we're trying to say, slow this train down. We're going way too far, way too fast. All right, so Dr. Mizell, I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on some of the issues that we just heard raised right there. Well, I, I, I actually agree with some of the points he's making um, in terms of, on the one hand, slowing the train down and um, allowing this to grow too fast. That's something that a number of people have been very concerned about um, in this past year, and that's the emergence of what what some call big canna, and you know the the uh, uh, basically allowing the market to dictate um, and the industry to dictate the terms of regulation. But I would have to disagree with the the, the analogy made or the connection made to alcohol. I mean, these are. I mean, a drug is not a drug is not a drug. I mean, every drug is has very different psychopharmacological effects, and um, alcohol acts on um, the body and the brain in very different ways than cannabis does. And so, to uh, assume that um, using cannabis is going to lead to other types of crime. Um, when it's made legal, I, I think really discounts the significance of cannabis 
obtained and used in an illicit market. And what I'm really getting at is that a lot of the crime that we do find associated, and specifically violent crime, associated with illicit drug use is not so much an artifact of the the psychopharmacological effects of the drug on the mind and the body as much as what are the circumstances under which illicit drugs are are acquired and consumed and you know are people committing crimes to obtain uh, to obtain drugs and are people committing crimes to protect their illicit drug market and so i think there's some you know i, I don't think it's a it's a fair comparison to make all right, so let's get to one of the promises of legalization that we've heard a lot about. I think that campaigners uh, often pointed to drug arrests, uh, in particular marijuana arrests, as being one of uh, the drivers of our nation's uh, prison overcrowding problem, uh, and also one of the drivers of the you know one of the ways in which that prison overcrowding problem became uh, very racially biased. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on? Well, what do we know so far in terms of how legalization is addressing that issue? Yeah, great question. Well, I mean, looking at uh, going back to arrest, I I would add that if we look at um, the drop in cannabis arrests by race, we see that what, what we actually see is that there's been a slight drop in the percentage of those who've been arrested for uh, marijuana felonies who are white, but there's actually been a slight increase in the percentage who are Hispanic or black. So what that means, you know, stated another way, the number of people uh, who have been arrested for marijuana offenses is way down, but the the racial composition of those who have been arrested has now shifted ever so slightly. But that's something we should be concerned about. That's something they've seen in Colorado, where post-legalization, the percentage of, of, of black and brown youth who are being arrested for cannabis offenses is up compared to uh, rates for, for white youth. In terms of uh, prison population in California, um, not surprisingly, there actually has been a, a, a drop in the number of people going uh, to prison for drug crimes between 2016 in 2017, um, and the and where we're actually seeing the drop, of course, is the the people who are admitted to prison for cannabis offenses. But keep in mind, you know, this is part of a a, a long term trend going back 22 years to when California legalized medical cannabis. So it's really hard to kind of pull this out and looking at just two years, but just pre and post legalization there has been a drop in the number of people going to prison for cannabis offenses, and the number of people who are in prison for cannabis offenses is down. In terms of the overall prison population rate, um, it's grown, but ever so slightly, and whether, you know, it's it's certainly not grown as an artifact of uh, cannabis arrests because those are down. So... We are seeing some growth in the prison population overall, so perhaps legalization will not be pivotal in this effort? I would say it would not be pivotal in terms of people who are going to prison for cannabis offenses because they already made up such a small number as it was. We're already starting with very low numbers. The bulk of people in prison in California are there for property offenses and for other types of drug offenses. The, the positive trend may be, as I said, in, in terms of arrests, if we start seeing a drop in a consistent drop 
in p the number of people arrested for narcotics and, and other dangerous drug offenses, meaning fewer people going to prison for those offenses, that could uh, that could ultimately impact the size of the prison population. So, when we heard those promises before legalization that this could take a serious dent out of our overcrowding problem, were we perhaps oversold on that? I don't know if I'd say oversold. I think part of it is it depends on what type of institutions we're talking about. We had a lot of people going to jail for cannabis offenses. You know, in prison, prison is where people go for more serious felonies. And, uh, you know, I think prior to legal, well, I mean, we also had de decriminalization in 2010. I mean, I think, I think there certainly is savings. I haven't, you know, I think it's too soon to say what that's, what we're looking at in terms of the, the cost to law enforcement, the courts, prisons, and jails. But when you're not have, when you're not dealing with as many offenders as you were, um, there, there is going to be some savings. Um, but the numbers that I'm seeing for the, um, in terms of the overall number of people going into, into prison for cannabis offenses, it's a, it's a, it's a slight drop. I mean, we're not talking about, um, big numbers. And last question I want to get your thoughts on before I let you go is another big effort that we've seen this year is the effort to expunge the criminal records of folks who cr uh, committed crimes that are no longer crimes, uh, you know, related to cannabis, whether uh, they were caught holding or using, and, you know, now that would certainly not be a crime anymore. Uh, we've seen some uh, district attorneys uh, take this upon themselves uh, here in San Francisco with uh, George Gascon. The San Francisco District Attorney's Office proactively will be dismissing misdemeanor cases sealing the records of those that were convicted for marijuana offenses. And we will also be able to provide relief without necessarily people having to file for it, without having to hire attorneys. We will do all the work for them. What have uh, you seen there, and uh, how big of a difference is this going to make in people's lives? Well, I think it'll make an enormous difference in people's lives. If this is removed from their record, it, it opens up opportunities. It opened stores that had been previously shut in terms of uh, you know, applying for different types of jobs, receiving financial aid for college, um, uh, um, applying to live in, in public housing or receiving um, public assistance. There are all sorts of what people call collateral consequences placed on people who have uh, criminal records and specifically drug records. And so to have their records expunged, could, could have a really significant impact. The other thing that's been interesting that you, you, I'm sure you're aware of in, in some jurisdictions like uh, Oakland and Los Angeles, they have basically provided, gives give, give somebody a pass to the front of the line, if you will, if somebody has had as a, um, a cannabis conviction in their past and they want to enter the legal cannabis industry, it gives them um, an advantage in the um, in permitting and licensing process in those cities. And it's, it's intended to, to address, I think, the, uh, the, the harms that were um, heavily borne by communities of color um, in, under cannabis prohibition. And so that, that's been a pretty interesting trend. The impact that has, I think, again, it's, it's, it's too soon to tell. You're listening to In-Depth on KCBS. That was Josh Mizell, 
professor of sociology and a co-director of the Humboldt Institute for Interdisciplinary Marijuana Research. Up next, we're going to take a look at how marijuana has impacted teens here in California. And this is a topic that concerned parents have a lot of questions about. How concerned should we be about the lacing of other substances with marijuana? The brain impacts with marijuana, are they permanent if stopped? How should I answer teen questions about curiosity? Does cannabis damage your DNA, mitochondria? If yes, what does this really mean? What amount of use is considered addictive? Those questions you just heard there were from events held at schools on the peninsula, while part of the Common Ground speaker series addressing youth and education issues. Now, the speaker answering those questions was Danielle Ramo, and she is going to be our guest for the second half of the show today. Dr. Ramo is an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UC San Francisco. She's also the director of research operations at Hope Lab in San Francisco. And of course, we're not going to be able to address all of those questions that we just heard in the time we have here on the show. But Dr. Ramo has been keeping a close eye on how teens have been responding in states where marijuana has been legalized. So I thought I'd sit down and talk to her about it. Here is that conversation. Daniel Ramo, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's just start with the broadest of questions. And uh, I think that this might be something that most of our listeners would just take for granted. But I I actually kind of want to dig down to why is it that we treat the notion of uh, teenage use and addiction of marijuana as a separate and, well, more serious issue than we do uh, for adults. What are the special risks uh, that teenagers are facing when they use something like marijuana? There are a few reasons why we should care about teen cannabis use in a different way than we would think about adult use. We know from a number of research studies that the earlier people start experimenting with any substance, including alcohol, cannabis, or other drugs, the more likely it is that they'll go on to have problems in using those substances later on in their lives. We also know that the risk of becoming addicted to marijuana is heavier if you starts early in adolescence. So if someone experiments, let's say, at age 12 or 13, not only is it more likely that they'll use throughout their adulthood, but... They'll, uh, they have a greater chance of meeting criteria for a cannabis use disorder. And that means that they feel like they need more cannabis in order to uh, feel stronger effects. And they need cannabis usually in larger amounts than they originally intended. And I think that we've also been hearing this here about research that points towards, and I, I think you just touched on this a second ago, that kids who use addictive substances are more prone to addiction later in life. Indeed, they are. And this is in part because the adolescent brain is not fully developed. So if we start patterns of uh, coping with stress or negative emotions by using substances early on in life around the adolescent years, the brain becomes really comfortable and kind of learns how to continue to use in order to cope with those problems. And then when we have negative emotions, we might tend to immediately go to using in order to try to feel better. And by adulthood, not only are those patterns neurobiologically set in, but also emotionally and uh, behaviorally set. So as soon as we start to feel bad, there's this immediate intense feeling like you need to use something in order to feel better. So those patterns get set in the early earlier cannabis is used. So how should we think about 
marijuana use as a threat for youth usage as compared to other things that they could be doing that are not so great for them. You're somebody who also studies uh, tobacco use among kids. And maybe this is just a way oversimplified way of looking at things, but is marijuana worse than tobacco? Is that fair to say? Or, 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 or is that, again, too simplified? I tend not to make direct comparisons between substances. I prefer to think developmentally, neurobiologically, and also behaviorally and say, frankly, there's a link between using one substance and using almost all substances. And the earlier the pattern starts of both experimentation, but also heavier use and the extent to which uh, multiple substances are used and use is heavy in adolescence, the more likely it is that we're going to have a whole host of problems in adulthood. That being said, I think it's fair to say that uh, using sub-substances occasionally might be better than using uh, some other substances quite a lot, but it's really hard to make a comparison. The key with teens is that using any substance makes it more likely that not only will teens not be able to do what they need to do in adolescence, like perform well at school, perform well in extracurricular activities, but a lot of the other immediate risks, like getting behind a wheel and driving under the influence of any substance, puts teens at much greater risk for accidents than uh, than adults, and this is true for all substances. All right. So that kind of lays the groundwork a little bit for the concerns that we should have in mind as we're thinking about what kind of risks uh, teen are, teens are put at when uh, marijuana becomes more accessible to them. But let's actually look at how accessible marijuana has become. Uh, it has been about a year since uh, recreational marijuana became legal in California. Uh, what does the data say at this point about how much more teens are using it? Everybody wants to know whether legalization (laughs) is going to result in teens using more cannabis. And there are some clear ways that we can define, without even looking at the numbers, that teens will have access to information about cannabis after legalization. Things like advertising has just blown up. There are tons of industry dollars behind advertising cannabis, but also primarily on youth-consumed media, online, on social media. So to the extent that youth are receiving messages around uh, what these substances are, but also messages promoting their use, that does make it more likely that some teens will become interested in using any substance, and we expect for this to happen with cannabis. Just the same way that if I see a bunch of Nike ads, I'm going to want more Nikes? Indeed. And that's true that we've seen that with tobacco. We've seen that with vaping, electronic cigarettes, alcohol, and marijuana really is no exception. Mm-hmm. That being said, there's also a contrasting factor to access, which is truly how much can teens actually access cannabis under legalization. And that's a different issue. If marijuana legalization is done right, fewer teens will have access to using cannabis. Almost no one can walk into a dispensary in California who's under 21. Uh, All dispensaries are uh, very, very aware of the risks of selling to minors, and they really do seem to be implementing the regulations fairly well. So if that's the case, uh, that combined with taxes, which are quite high in California, teens will not necessarily be able to get marijuana more easily than before legalization. That's important, too. Now, I know that it's it's still quite early and, and, and the survey results might not be entirely in, but there are other states as well, uh, notably uh, Colorado, uh, Washington, that have uh, legalized marijuana. What are we seeing there in terms of teen usage uh, rates? 
Well, rates of teen cannabis use started out higher in Colorado and Washington than they did in the rest of the United States. But everybody wanted to know, under recreational legalization, would the rate increase or decrease in those states among teens. It looked right after legalization in 2012 that rates were starting to go up, but actually in Colorado, the rates significantly decreased two years after cannabis was legalized. So fewer adolescents were actually using in the state of Colorado two years after legalization. That is generally positive for us to think about what recreational legalization could mean for teen use. But I've also seen some studies that look like that look at whether uh, legalization results in other kinds of public health problems after legalization. And it does look like uh, in Colorado, there might be more uh, DUIs. And that could be from people combining marijuana and alcohol use in the wake of legalization. So we'll be watching out for that in California as well. And so again, here in California, it's just too early to say too much about this? It's too early to say what will happen after legalization. But what we have been able to track are rates of teen substance use in California right up to legalization. So what we have seen is that from 2011 to 2017, rates of cannabis use, alcohol use, cigarettes, e-cigarettes have all been declining steadily in California. This is generally a good thing, I would argue. And what we'll be looking at is whether those rates continue to decrease under legalization. But because uh, studies like the California Healthy Kids Survey, which looks at rates of substance use in grades 7 9, and 11 throughout California has shown that rates have decreased each year from 2011 to 2017. But based on the size of the survey, we have to look at chunks of two years. So in order to say what actually rates have done after legalization, we'll have to look at the data from 2018 and 2019. And unfortunately, we can't expect to see that until 2020. So I mean, what does that say to you? And what should that say to concerned parents, concerned policymakers about how we should respond to legalization? Now that it's here, you know, how, however folks feel about it, it is here now. So given that data that you were discussing a second ago, what should that tell us to do? I like to say that parents need to have a realistic approach to teen cannabis use in the wake of legalization. Indeed, legalization is here and it is here to stay for the foreseeable future. So on the one hand, we don't have to be terrified about what that means for teen use. And in fact, it could mean that uh, teens are protected against using marijuana earlier or more often than they were before. And if that's the case, that's generally a good thing. That would be a positive outcome of legalization. On the other hand, given the massive increase in expenditures from the industry that's blossomed under, under legalization, the advertising that will clearly reach teens. And so exchange of information about cannabis and other drug use on social media that's widely used by teens, parents need to stay ahead of that information to the extent possible. So you're uh, somebody who is actually going out engaging with parents, going uh, to various schools and giving talks on some of the risks that we're talking about here. I guess we can round things out by just 
in a practical sense, if I'm a parent and I want to learn more, I, this is something I'm concerned about and I want more resources, what are my options right now? A nice option for parents is the San Francisco Department of Public Health's website. They have a set of resources, not only in what uh, anyone should know about recreational cannabis in San Francisco and in California, but there's also a specific focus on teen use that has some nice information about why teens shouldn't use and what the research shows about teen cannabis use and how it's different from adult use. All right, well, we're going to round things out on that note. Daniel Ramo is the Director of Research Operations at Hope Lab and also an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at UC San Francisco. Danielle, thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, you've been listening to In-Depth on KCBS. Tune in again next week when we take another deep dive into one of the major news topics facing the Bay Area. I am Keith Manconi, and I will see you then. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 